Welcome to the Green Beginnings Podcast, where together we delve into the depths of sustainability. Each episode, we explore different sectors guided by experts who share their journey and knowledge to demystify sustainability and make it more accessible and inspiring for everyone. I'm Konsti, your host for this episode, joined by my colleague Francisco. Today, we're excited to welcome a very special guest, James Purcell the Deputy Chief Sustainability Officer at Credit Suisse. James brings a unique perspective to sustainable finance, combining a rich background in history from Oxford University with extensive experience in conventional finance. In our discussion today, we delve into the complexities and evolution of sustainable finance, how it's shaped by and shapes global markets, and the trends and risks emerging in this dynamic field. So... Sit back, relax, and join us on this journey of discovery on the Green Beginnings podcast. Hi, James. Thanks again so much for being on uh, and joining us uh, today. Um, to kick it off, um, we would like to jump into your story uh, in the sustainability space. So maybe you can just give us a quick um, background on uh, like the story, how you got interested in the, in the, in the space and how you finally uh, shifted your career towards uh, that, that field. Happy to. And again, thank you very much for the invitation today. Um, so I like to think of my career in sustainable finance as a little bit of a pleasant accident. Um, and by that, I mean, I spent most of my time in the conventional finance space. Um, I grew up, as it were, in an investment bank, moved to the investment office of a large uh, wealth manager. And sustainability was always there, but it was quite tangential to my career. It wasn't something that I was acutely aware of. And my employer at the time uh, increasingly got interested in the subject for a number of reasons, some that were profit motivated, some that was more altruistic. And what I witnessed from the outside was the types of people working in sustainable finance were incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly passionate, but often not always as successful as they could have been. So large companies have many nuances to them, whether it's bureaucracy, uh, potentially politics, et cetera, and so forth. And a lot of these people just simply weren't familiar with the financial industry. So they'd come in from these wonderful backgrounds, joining from NGOs, joining from the World Bank and so forth, and would have a surprisingly difficult time in the corporate world. And I found myself just being drawn into their orbit um, step by step where I would help them with a small project, perhaps um, maybe help them uh, explain how to handle a certain meeting or a certain procedure. And little by little, that sparked my own interest in it. And I found very quickly that uh, these individuals were brilliant. They knew far more than I did about sustainability. But what I could bring to the table was I could help them navigate the financial uh, environment and I could help navigate the company that we were in. So these things snowballed, of course, as they often do. Uh, and very quickly, I, I found myself running uh, sustainable investing and sustainable finance um, uh, offerings. And in exchange for being upskilled by these individuals who were kind enough to tolerate uh, my lack of knowledge at the start, I helped them scale and I helped them achieve the impact that they desired. So basically, it was it was like a, a slow journey that yeah that developed, and uh, you guys helped each other out. 
throughout that. Indeed. And as I said, I think it's one of these things that it's, it's not always slow. It, it, it then started moving very quickly. Um, so it has, you know, some similarities to some of the big trends in sustainability. If we think about tipping points in relation to climate and so forth, these things happen gradually and then suddenly they accelerate. Um, I think, yeah, my career in sustainable finance was very similar. It went from, as I said, helping someone maybe, you know, prepare for a meeting, you know, purely out of the goodness of my heart to suddenly being sat uh, at the top of uh, a very large, prominent um, uh, organization running a very large team and being responsible for, you know, billions upon billions of dollars of assets. Um, so these things are, are not always linear um, in the way that they develop. Um, and my general advice, irrespective of sustainability to people, is normally to say yes to things. And if you say yes to things, if you embrace things, um, the possibilities obviously open up as a result thereof. And certainly this was a case where I said yes a few times in a row um, and extremely good things happened uh, as a result of that. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for giving us that insight. And then if we go one step back, uh, you studied history, right? Like how, how did your shift into the, to the, the world of finance come in the first place? Indeed, indeed. Um, so you're right. I, I was a history major at uh, Oxford University a long, long time ago. So you're asking me to remember something um, that is a long time ago in my life, but I'll do my best. Um, so again, a little bit of an accident, to be blunt. Um, when I was in my second year of university, it was typical to do an internship, as it were. And what would happen is you'd have the banks, you'd have the management consultant companies. Uh, this was before tech companies were a big thing, shall we say, in this regard. Um, and uh, first of all, the banks paid the most. And if you're going to do an eight-week um, eight internship in London, um, you want to make it uh, as, uh, worth your while. So that was the first attraction, um, complete and utter uh, self-interest um, on, on that regard. But what I quickly found with um, what I went into, which was uh, a function around uh, uh, equity research and distribution. So we could call it stock picking. We could call it you know, equity investing, however you want to describe it, really, um, is that history and the stock markets had huge similarities so if I thought about what I did in history every day, I took an array of disparate information, many different sources. I weighed those sources for credibility. Some were deliberately misleading, some historical records you can't trust. Some you needed to collaborate, uh, sorry, collaborate with uh, others and piece things together like a jigsaw. And others were you know, really robust. And once you put the information together from a historical point of view, you then reached a conclusion and a thesis um, on what you think happened and why. And of course, what I've just described uh, translates across to investing pretty much one for one. You have an array of different information. You have quantitative information. You have qualitative information. You have views from the management of the company that you may or may not trust. You have uh, views from the competitors and the supply chain. And in some ways, um, what I found was that my skill set was extremely applicable in this world. You know, I was good at processing information. I was good at weighing that information and turning it into a cohesive uh, argument with a conclusion and with a number of supporting points. And that really is what investing is. So admittedly, the rest of my intern class were maths majors, uh, economics majors, 
business majors, a couple of maybe chemists and physicists thrown in for diversity. Um, and there was me doing history. But I found very quickly, actually, that um, what I'd learned was um, arguably more applicable than many of my colleagues who had studied things that you might think might have been a bit closer to the subject matter. It's actually really cool. I've never thought about like comparing the history and finance and or i guess stock picking uh, and and distribution in, in that manner so james sustainable finance is a, a very broad term and it commonly means different things to different people how do you define it absolutely um so before i answer that question um i will just state that we need to be a little bit careful um when people want to redefine things in their own words um, because you're absolutely right. It is a term that can mean many different things. And therefore, the temptation is always to redefine it in an attempt to achieve something that is understandable. Uh, of course, by doing that, what you're doing is you're adding another complexity, another term, another definition to the mix. So we do need to be a little bit careful uh, when we answer these questions that we don't uh, make things less clear in our attempts to try and be clear. So... With that as a caveat, I'm going to do it anyway, because um, it's very hard to answer that question without um, you know, falling into that uh, little bit of a trap. So I guess when I think of sustainable finance, uh, I really break it into its two component pieces. So sustainability is, again, most commonly defined um, uh, from the definitions that were established back in 1987. Uh, the UN, the Brundtland um, Commission, defines sustainability and I'll paraphrase slightly, uh, of meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs, which is a really, I think, simple and understandable concept when we think about sustainability. It's what can we do today without screwing up the future, basically. So that's the sustainable side to me. It's about what are we doing today and what does that impact on the future? And can we do that in a way that doesn't take away from those that come after us? And then finance is a relatively, again, to, to my mind, quite a simple concept. It really is the provision, it's the transfer, it's the matching, if you will, of capital um, between those that have capital and those who seek capital. Um, and what we do in sustainable finance, of course, is do that provision, do that transfer, do that matching in pursuit of the sustainable uh, objective. So for me, as I said, I think we can get very lost in these terms. But if we think about sustainability in terms of what are we doing today and does it compromise the future? And if we think about finance of matching, you know, where pools of capital exist and where there uh, are needs for capitals, uh, for capital, if we put those two things together, I think we find ourselves in a realm of sustainable finance pretty quickly. Obviously, uh, you've, uh, you've studied sustainable finance extensively. Uh, could you give us a brief history of sustainable finance and how it's evolved over the years? I can give it a go, yeah. Um, so I think sustainable finance, in most people's eyes, starts with um, a form of values-related investing, i.e. I don't like a certain activity and therefore I'm not going to fund it. And that traces itself back you know, way more than 100 years. Um, you see a lot of these uh, evidence around religious groups, in particular the Quakers, for example, that were very prominent with this type of theory. They had uh, views based uh, upon a, a set of morals, a set of religious values, and they wanted to make sure that their uh, investing activity uh, reflected those morals and views. And that in itself is a form of sustainable uh, investing, I would argue, but very much the kind of the grounding of that. 
I think sustainable investing then really gathers pace uh, in the 1970s. So the 1970s is when you have the Vietnam War, um, and uh, you also had, as I said, the financial system developed to a point where um, there was a, a strong connection between what occurred in the economic sphere and what occurred in the finance sphere. So we started seeing um, uh, uh, groups of investors who didn't want to fund the Vietnam War, essentially. So they took that kind of concept of values and they really applied it uh, fairly uh, aggressively uh, in that in that sphere. Again, mostly led by religious groups, but that's when you do see the founding of the first sustainable mutual fund, for example. It was a fund related to um, not investing in weapons companies and those companies that supported the Vietnam War. Uh, then things accelerate. And again, it is very much driven by the real world, by the real economy, by politics. The 1980s, uh, South African apartheid, again, a very large boycott of uh, South African companies, both in the real economy, but also an attempt to deny them finance uh, in the financial markets, um, which is, again, I think solidifies many of these kind of concepts of exclusion and not investing in things that are deemed uh, distasteful. And by the time you get to 1990, uh, you get the first sustainable indexes being developed. So people spending the time to comprise lists of companies that they deem sustainable. And of course, uh, de facto companies they don't deem sustainable and keeping track of that in a structured uh, manner. So you start seeing, as I said, the first indexes uh, emerge in the 1990s. If you fast forward to the 2000s, um, then I think the, the tone changes and it begins to become more about uh, international collaboration, international standards, international understanding. So in the 2000s, you had uh, the birth of the UN Global Compact, for example, which really was one of the first attempts to define what is sustainable when it comes to uh, corporate, uh, corporate behavior. By 2005, the term ESG, environmental, social and governance, uh, starts getting used um, for the first for the first time, so you start having uh, a basic framework in which to assess sustainability uh, across uh, three pillars. Um, Two thousand and six, I believe it is, is when you see the, uh, the United Nations form the principles for responsible investment, which is turned into the largest club, the largest alliance, um, if you want, of uh, investors who seek to invest in some way sustainable. And then by the time you get to 2011, um, we then move into uh, another phase. So 2011 was the birth of um, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which is the one of the first attempts. There were a few before, but I think this is probably the big one of trying to bring um, the rigor of financial accounting to sustainability. So really thinking about what are the metrics, how do we measure sustainability, uh, and can we do it in a way that is uh, you know, globally consistent? Uh, then, of course, we have the Paris Agreement, um, which is going to very much a real economy um, activity in, in 2015. And then I think everything really takes off and really explodes um, probably 2018 when you know, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, starts publicly writing his annual letters on the topic of sustainability, demanding that the companies that BlackRock invest in uh, do more. So for me, you can kind of break this down into phases. You know, you start off with a very much a values driven approach, an approach that's, uh, as I said, based upon not wanting to invest in things that then matures into a formal exclusion uh, process. 
And then it turns, as I said, into uh, the inverse, which is the positive view on sustainability and the creation of indexes of sustainability. Uh, and then again, we start morphing through a, a few new things. We get the toolkit to be able to articulate sustainability with ESG. Uh, we get the groupings of investors trying to work together. And then we start getting the metrics of how to measure uh, sustainability at a company level. So it's very much something that I think has evolved quite organically. Um, it's been built up in layers. Um, but you can see, I think I said a, a few kind of uh, key, key drivers that have been present uh, through that period, I would say. Thank you so much for, for the comprehensive overview. I have uh, one specific question because I've heard of like I've heard of like Larry Fink's letter quite often as as the the big bang that I guess as you said like propelled everything to really take off. Uh, obviously, it's it's nothing anyone can know for sure. But what do you think the intentions were behind releasing this first letter? Um. It's a very good question. Um, and obviously, it's very difficult to understand what someone's inherent um, motivations are. Um, but if I've had as a guess, it's it's the motivations that I think drive drive most people. Um, we have within us an element of self-interest, um, which in the financial world tends to manifest as, as a profit-seeking um, idea that something is good business, quote-unquote. Um But we also have within us uh, a form of altruism. We have empathy. Uh, when someone's upset, we feel things. If someone is uh, in trouble and we have the ability to save them, people will you know, rescue uh, one another, as it were. Um, so I would assume it's a combination of the two, a combination of doing the right thing um, from an altruistic point of view and doing something that uh, was deemed to be an appropriate uh, and uh, business strategy at the same time. And I don't think those two motivations are, are, are opposed. Um, I don't think one is right and one is wrong, but I think they're both grounded very much in um, psychology, very much grounded in uh, the kind of the, the innate being, if you will, of humans. Um, and as I said, I think when they come together, um, they can create extremely powerful forces like what we saw um, in, in, as I said, the late uh, 2010s. Fair enough, because uh, also the next question of, of mine would have been, um... Why do you, or, or what are the main drivers you've observed for people to, to invest into sustainable products? And, and I would assume now that your answer is going to be quite, quite similar, right? It's probably the same two motives. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think so. So there's this, there's clearly a profit motivation. Um, it's not unreasonable to believe that sustainable companies will have at least comparable, um, Uh, profitability over the medium term as unsustainable companies. And I think one of, one of the, the simple kind of tests that I, that I would do this by is if you could only invest in one company, imagine what that company would look like. So if you could invest in one company, would that company be constantly having issues with its regulator? Would it have issues of its staff striking and walking out? Uh, would it have issues of suppliers, with, you know, just randomly deciding not to do deliveries, et cetera, et cetera? And, and the answer to all those questions is no, of course not. Um, if you were to invest in one company, um, the company that you, that you imagine uh, for the vast, vast majority of people would look ex extraordinarily uh, sustainable in terms of how it interacted with its various stakeholders, you know, how it managed its governance, its financial accounting, et cetera, and so forth. So I think this, this idea that sustainability um, has 
a profit component to it is relatively robust. It's also been shown through you know quite a lot of uh, you know academic and other independent studies by now. So I do think profit motivation is a perfectly legitimate reason why people choose to invest um, sustainably. Um, I guess then when we move to this you know other piece that I, I kind of mentioned this this kind of altruistic piece, um, I think my temptation is probably to break it down a little bit further um, for this question which is I think there's a component where people like to align towards sustainability, if, if you will. So it, it, is, it feels good to um, invest sustainably. You may not know exactly what you've invested in, um, but the fact that you have done something sustainable uh, is, um, gives you a, a value that is non-monetary, if that makes sense, you know. So just like how if you see, you know, a, a small child fall over and you help, you know, you, you pick them up, you probably walk away from that feeling quite good about yourself. You've just helped a small child who was crying. You know, that makes you feel good. You didn't get paid for it, but you felt good. So I do think there is this element of alignment um, that is quite present so that people will be motivated to invest sustainable in, in a sustainable way in order to achieve that um, non-monetary benefit. And then I think there's this other component uh, or other sub-component, as it were, where people are you know, trying to create real-world impact, trying to create real-world change through their, through their actions. Um, and that real-world change benefits everyone, of course. It benefits themselves. Um, but primarily, I guess it benefits you know, a population that's, that's broader. So as I said, I think you've got these you know, these two big categories um, of, of of kind of self interest and altruism, but I think that altruism kind of breaks down into something a little bit more complex um, between alignment and impact. Fair enough. And then for the profit part, how clear is that the academic like literature on that? Yes, it's a great question. Um, and. The data or the weight of studies, shall we say, is very clear. Um, if you were to do a kind of a numerical count of studies that were for and uh, studies that were against, if you will. Um, so that is, it's, um, it's a weight of papers. I guess that the problem that one has or the challenge that one has is confirmation bias. Um, people may be seeking those results. So your average researcher who works on sustainable finance is, you know, quote unquote, pro sustainable finance, you know. Um, so we need to be a little bit careful about these studies and not just believing what we want to believe. Um, but Certainly from the data that we have, certainly, you know, from what we can as I say, either be in the academic sphere or what we can observe through long running indices that are and methodologies that have been out there for several decades. It doesn't seem to be detrimental and it definitely appears to have a positive bias. Um, I'm aware I put a couple of caveats on that. Um, and I will put one more caveat on it as well, of course, which is sustainability is unlikely to be magic, which is if something in, in financial markets is known to be able to produce an excess return, generally speaking, it gets competed away, right? Markets are forward-looking. Uh, investors are generally relatively bright people. 
it's unusual for things to be permanently persistent. And therefore, um, much like you know, one's personal happiness is kind of the difference between your expectations and, and the reality. Um, you know, financial markets are similar. So I think what we've seen in the last few years is perhaps the, the expectation of sustainability perhaps get a little ahead of itself compared to the, the reality of, of, of some of the economics. Um, and thus, yeah, it, there definitely is the potential that out and under performance can be a little bit cyclical, if that makes sense, um, rather than just a, a, a simplistic one-way bet. So as I said, I think it's a nuanced question and it requires a nuanced answer, um, but it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to draw negative conclusions on sustainable investing. It's easier to draw positive ones, but we shouldn't jump to them just because we want them to be true. Totally makes sense. Um, and I mean, also, again, the, the field is very broad, right? And uh, through your, throughout your career, uh, you said that you, I guess you started with, with like equities. Um, and now you've probably been in like in, involved with uh, various different products, uh, spe specifically in the, in the field of sustainability. Do you have like uh, one product uh, that you're particularly proud of or that you particularly enjoyed setting up? Yeah, um, I've set up many over the years. Um, I think my favorite ones are always the ones that are the most understandable. Um, so definitely one of my favorites is a very simple concept, which is uh, recycled gold. So Lots of portfolios have gold. We all know why people want to own gold. It's you know a store of value, an inflation hedge, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and the gold mining and the gold refining industry has done an awful lot over the years to try and make itself more sustainable, which is a credit to them. However, extracting gold from the ground, when you look at it in its um, kind of most basic terms is one of the most crazy things we do as humans. So you need to uh, mine a ton of rock, right? An entire ton to get 10 grams of gold out the ground, which is the most ridiculous thing when you think about the sheer scale of what you have to do to a landscape to get 10 grams. So the purity is what, 0.001% um, for gold. So the idea that gold will ever be sustainable in a mined fashion, no matter all the good intentions that we do see from the miners and the refiners is, is, is to my mind, completely crazy. And then we have the concept of recycling. So gold is one of the few things in the world that is infinitely recyclable. It's perfect for the circular economy. It's extremely difficult to destroy gold. You know, you can hit it, you can burn it, you can melt it, you can put it underwater, you can do whatever you like to it, and the gold remains. And these days we have more gold above ground than we have gold below ground. Um, we've mined over half of the known gold in, in the planet. And a lot of it sits around in quite an inert state. So it sits in jewelry and it sits in gold bars. And therefore, it's um, an extremely useful resource when it comes to recycling. So if you think of uh, what recycled gold means, it means taking gold that uh, is you know, no longer being used in a productive manner 
and recycling it so that it can be made uh, productive. Um, again, an incredibly simple concept. Um, and the benefits that go with it are, are you know, unsurprisingly numerous. The carbon footprint of recycled gold is a fraction of mined gold for fairly obvious uh, reasons. And it doesn't come with all the biodiversity um, and other um, implications around, you know, blowing up mountains and digging out tons upon tons of, of, of rock. So one of my favorite things is absolutely recycled gold. It's incredibly simple, incredibly easy to understand um, and is, is kind of grounded in common sense rather than complex methodologies um, in, in many ways. Now, moving here a bit more towards uh, the current market, uh, looking at the horizon, what trends and risks uh, do you currently see emerging in the sustainability space or the sustainable finance space? So I think in terms of trends, there is um, definitely a move towards impact. Um, and by that, I mean evidence that the investments made are creating real-world change. So evidence that we can directly trace cause and effect between making an investment and something good uh, happening. And that's a great thing um, that increasingly people are, are realizing that we need the financial system not just to improve data and not just to align um, between people's you know, values, but we need it to actually be a change agent. So that's leading to all sorts of things, particularly you know, a lot of growth around um, things such as venture capital and private equity and a whole host of innovative uh, financial structures. And I think that's a, a trend which is really satisfying to see. Um, as I said, people want the financial system. People want finance um, to have a clear cause and effect. In terms of the risks, and it is a, a perhaps, um, and again, it's one that I say with nuance, uh, it's around regulation, um, which is regulation is almost always well-intended, but it can have unintended uh, consequences. So we've seen in recent years quite a lot of um, clamping down on alleged acts of greenwashing, and that is needed, absolutely, um, for you know, obvious reasons. But it does have an unintended consequence, which is it can make people fearful of stepping into the space um, for fear of being uh, shot down. So much like a student in a classroom might be you know, nervous about going to the front of the class and giving a presentation. And if they go to the front of the class and they get you know, laughed at by the teacher, it turns them off doing, uh, doing it again. Um, so there's this, there's this potential risk as we regulate, that we actually push people away from sustainable finance rather than towards it. We make people um, you know, overly nervous that they're going to get called out for criticism, um, and thus people um, would rather not try um, uh, rather than try and potentially be in some way exposed. So as I said, I think uh, in terms of the, the, uh, the risks, regulation is one where we've got to make sure we get it right. It's extremely important it exists but we have to be careful we don't create an environment that is um, discouraging for uh, innovation and discouraging for sustainable finance in general. So uh, mentioning here already also the, the risks and threats, also something that I, I thought I'd mention here and that maybe you could explain a bit is your supermarket analogy um, that uh, you've famously re written in your book. 
Yes, no, absolutely. Um, so my supermarket analogy um, basically uh, is all about accessibility. And what the supermarket analogy says is if you were to walk into uh, a supermarket and you were to look at the shelves and you were to see sugar labeled as salt, salt labeled as flour, and flour having no label whatsoever. And if you then turn to a shop assistant and ask for help, and they spoke to you in a language that you'd never heard of before, what are you going to do? Are you going to end up partaking in that? Are you going to buy? Are you going to be part of that ecosystem? Or are you going to give up and walk out the door? And of course, pretty much all of us are going to walk out the door. We will be confused. We'll be frustrated. We'll be annoyed. And the sustainable finance industry has had a habit of creating such a supermarket. Um, it likes to create technical jargon. Um, even its most famous um, acronym, ESG, is, is somewhat inaccessible to the average person uh, on the street. Um, and thus, it creates often barriers between um, would-be investors, would-be purchasers, and the potential um, sustainable finance solutions and hopefully positive outcomes that could, that could occur. Um, and that's a real shame when what we need to do, of course, is make sustainable finance accessible, much like, of course, what you guys are doing with your podcast, making it something that people can connect with and easily partake in. Um, and as I said, quite often we, we get it wrong um, and we actually uh, make it technical and we put up barriers um, and thus uh, do turn people away from it inadvertently. Uh, greenwashing is obviously a concern for many, just like you mentioned. I think it's obviously a barrier to entry to sometimes, especially in the highly regulated world that uh, it's that this sustainable finance space seems to be. Um, could you also maybe explain a bit on how how we could combat this uh, greenwashing and also how maybe we could ease the barrier of entry sometimes? Yeah, so again, I'll try and answer this one with nuance, which is, so greenwashing is the concept that people are presenting their products or their services as sustainable when they're not. And that is not a good thing. Let's be absolutely clear about that. Um, if people are misrepresenting any product or service um, to, to the general public, um, there should be consequences. You don't want people um, you know, pretending they've got medical cures when they don't. And similarly, you don't want people pretending that they've got sustainable solutions and outcomes when they don't. However, there are a couple of caveats to this. Um, a lot of the greenwashing accusations that you see are not because someone's deliberately misled um, their investors or consumers. It's simply because people have different interpretations of sustainability. So, for example, if one person's view of sustainability was focused on, illustratively, selecting the most sustainable companies, regardless of their industry, they're going to end up with a completely different portfolio to someone who selects the best or most sustainable company in every industry, right? So one will have um, no tobacco companies, I would assume, and perhaps no mining companies and no oil and gas companies. And the second portfolio would. They'd only have the very best of, of them, but they would have them. And these two investor groups have simply a different view on what is sustainable. And therefore, um, there is often these accusations that someone's greenwashing when in reality, they've just gone about it in a different way. And they've normally gone about it in a different way that's actually very transparent if you take the time 
to have a look at it before uh, you know hitting the greenwashing um, uh, um, kind of button. So yes, greenwashing is something that needs to be addressed, but we do need to make sure that we differentiate between intended misleading of people and simply just different opinions. And of course, people are allowed to have um, different opinions if they're well formed. The, the the second point I'd make on greenwashing is greenwashing is somewhat inevitable in a fast growing industry. So you still don't want it, but it will occur. And that can be a sign of sustainability going mainstream and having success. So to use an analogy uh, for you, if we educate our children, we will have more people cheating on tests. Now, what do we do about that? Do we stop educating everyone to eliminate uh, the people who cheat on tests? Um, that's not the solution. So the fact that uh, greenwashing is existing, um, it needs to also be proportional, right? If we've got 100 funds doing a fantastic job and helping to change the world for the better, and we have one fund that is greenwashing, that might be an acceptable price to pay, um, you know, for something that's being uh, accepted um, as part of as part of the mainstream. So we do need to, again, have a little bit of proportionality um, when it comes to greenwashing. Yes, we absolutely need to stamp it out, but we need to also, again, as I say, first understand that sometimes it's a function of opinion rather than deliberateness. Uh, and second, um, it is also a function of any fast-growing um, industry as it becomes uh, mainstream. There will always be good actors and bad actors, and there may be an acceptable um, ratio uh, between good and bad um, for the greater good. All right. Um, I guess now we've spoken about sustainable finance, your path into it, specific products, um, risks and trends. Uh, and now I was wondering, uh, just if you get into the office, what does the day of what does it your day look like? What does a deputy CSO do? It's going to be different at every single company. Um, you know, just like sustainability can be interpreted in different ways. How you structure a sustainable investing and sustainable finance department is also going to be different in in all, in, in all different companies. Uh, and that heterogeneity, I think, is broadly a good thing um, in terms of uh, you know the skills and the learnings that the industry has. Uh, my particular world is I've been overseeing uh, a combination of sustainable investing and sustainable finance at a major bank. So a lot of that is focused around things such as policy um, and frameworks. How do we approach things from a strategic point of view? Um, and how do we then actually implement those strategic visions um, uh, thereafter? And that can include things such as incentives. How do we actually bring people with us on the journey? It can include things such as communications and disclosures. Um, and it can include, as I said, uh, elements that are very much operational or, or uh, product focused. Uh, a lot of my jobs, um, you know, current and past, have also had a large stakeholder component. Um, both internal and external. So quite a lot of time working with uh, ultra high net worth individuals, um, helping to uh, helping them to understand the, the, the potential um, power that they have through their investments and their financing activities, but also working with industry groups and regulators uh, to try and bring things forward in a constructive uh, manner and have something of a, a multiplier effect uh, with it as well. 
So yeah, I can't say there's something typical to it. Um, but again, as I said, I think a lot of it really kind of uh, uh, comes down to scaling um, and how can you create a scale through, through your actions, um, be that, as I said, through policies and procedures or be that through um, wider uh, industry uh, and external, um, external uh, groupings. Leadership styles often uh, leadership often comes with uh, steep learning curves. Uh, what what, ex what experience have shaped your leadership style? Uh, it's certainly evolved over time. Um, I think I've grown to appreciate the human element far far more um, over the years, and my, my fondest memories now are where. I've actually helped an individual um, with their work-life balance or something similar. Um, so, you know, one one short story involves a gentleman who wanted to leave the finance industry and become an entrepreneur, um, which is absolutely fantastic. And his first startup actually ended up failing um, uh, and wasn't wasn't particularly successful. But what I managed to agree with him was to move him to a part-time contract. So uh, he was able still to have a steady income. He was able to test this lifestyle, see if it was for him. He was able to move into it uh, kind of step by step. Um, and if we hadn't done that, he would have, you know, been back in, uh, you know, the, the, the corporate world very quickly, um, having, you know, failed on his first attempt. So there's variants of that. You know, many of them involve, as I said, family reasons as well, people with children and so forth. And that human element of leadership for me is, as I said, certainly the, the, the things that I'm kind of most proud of um, and that stick with me uh, through the years. Um, from a corporate kind of perspective, I guess, and, and in terms of, you know, where I think, um, you know, um, leading and has been most successful for me, um, it's normally been centered around variants of collaboration um, and, Try not to do things by yourself uh, and instead bringing people with you on the journey rather than uh, pushing against them. And there's, there's generally speaking, as, as I say, probably two subsets to this. One is seeking out mutual win-wins. So uh, taking the perspective of another individual, seeing what would be success for them and trying to engineer a situation where you are uh, both successful and you're enlarging the pie rather than fighting over uh, the pie. So this kind of concept of mutual win-wins and uh, you know, deliberately designing uh, designing them is one that I think has been fairly central to me. Um, and even more recently, I've probably taken it one step further, which is to start conversations by asking people outright what their problems are and what they want to achieve and not put forward my own ideas of what I want to achieve and simply just try and understand how I can help someone. And in helping them invariably, um, I'm also able to advance some of the things that I'm interested in. And it's an awful lot easier, of course, to get people alongside if you're helping them rather than asking them to help you. Um, you know, you're guaranteed for them to be alongside um, when you're certainly not guaranteed uh, that they'll be alongside if you're asking for their help. So, that is again as, as a form of, of a way of leading, uh, understanding basically what people people want and need, um, and then trying to facilitate it. Um, I think that is something that is very valuable, and you know people 
often think that leaders need to be the ones kind of, you know, shouting and pointing which way to go. Sometimes, you know, you've got brilliant talent around you and your job is to, you know, facilitate it rather than to necessarily, uh, you know, dominate the, uh, dominate the proceedings. So I'd, I'd probably say that those kind of things, the human aspect of leadership is something that, as I said, is, is what sticks with me um, when, all, when all is kind of done. Um, and then on the corporate side, it's about collaboration, whether it's, you know, sculpting and molding situations that are mutually beneficial or just outright trying to help other people and, uh, you know, um, you know, having confidence that in helping other people, you're, you're going to be helping yourself along the way. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, then we would jump to like the, I guess the last part, um, of, of this 45, uh, interesting minutes. And basically just like, I think five, five to six quick fire questions, which we just shoot, uh, to, to get your reaction on the spot. Um, so the first sure. one would be in a sentence, what advice would you give to your 18 year old self? My 18 year old self. Um, <laughs> I would have told me to take greater benefit of my university years. Um, I have never been in an environment as wonderful as the one I was in, in terms of learning, in terms of opportunity, um, in terms of all the extracurricular thing. And like everyone, you know, I, I spent a lot of time doing slightly silly things. Um, and yeah, um, I would definitely have told myself just to, shift that dial a little further to really embrace the wonderful, wonderful landscape that I had and, and the opportunity at Oxford. It was a, a magical place. And uh, what sector would you specialize in right now within the sustainability field? Uh, technology, um, undoubtedly. Um, unfortunately, when we think about, especially climate, um, we are arguably it's getting harder and harder to mitigate um, climate change, i.e. to bend the curve to reduce our emissions. And we've got to start thinking about, unfortunately, how do we actually adapt? How do we deal with, you know, a two degree, a two and a half degree, a three degree world? Um, that's a scary thought to kind of, you know, um, get there. And I'm certainly not advocating that people give up on trying to prevent it. Um, but we do need to also think about what happens if we aren't successful. And the technology side of that is is, is um, absolutely massive, um, and I think that's that's certainly an area that, uh, by necessity, unfortunately, is going to be a huge growth area in sustainable finance. So, yeah, adaptation technology. And uh, what do you think are the most important skills to to build right now? As a, I guess uh, maybe a, a high school graduate or a university a university student. Um all variants of soft skills um you know if we'd sat here five years ago we would have told everyone to you know learn how to code and then we found out that actually you know we've now got situations where you can have uh you know codeless uh coding uh so to speak um i imagine the expectation people will have is you know learn to use generative ai um you know th these things move quicker than we can skill ourselves um in, in some ways so um, yeah, I, I, I think the things that are universal and the things that have the longest shelf life and the longest half life is, are, are soft skills. Um, absolutely. So I, I would tell people to really focus on, on who they are as an individual and how they interact with people. And then uh, where would you see yourself uh, in 10 years? And maybe also where would you see the sustainability, uh, sustainable finance space in 10 years? 
Uh, I have a habit of saying yes to things. Um, I think, again, that's some best advice that I can give people to say yes to things. So um, I don't know where I'll be in 10 years on the back of saying yes to things. I could be, um, again, doing variants of what I'm doing now. I could be in something an awful lot smaller, uh, but potentially higher of impact. I could be stepping out of the whole thing altogether. Who knows? Um, so um, I don't know on that. I think on the sustainable finance side, uh, as we you know touched on earlier, I think the we will be increasingly moving from disclosure, moving from alignment to action-orientated, real-world impact. Um, I think that is where we're moving to. Um, again, perhaps out of necessity as well, um, that people are going to be chasing that down in terms of how does this actually contribute? And that's going to be the big question. All right. Thank you. And then finally, uh, what uh, resources would you recommend for, for young people to, to further their, their knowledge uh, of the space? Um, so despite having written a book, um, uh, I actually think, um, you can, you, uh, you can get an awful lot, um, you know, out of, out of video, uh, formats. Um, there's so many good resources out there. Uh, I find myself watching, you know, uh, even short form, you know, 30 second videos from the world economic forum that are very insightful. And then, you know, using that as a, as an excuse to go down a rabbit hole where, uh, again, I'll, I'll go into more detailed material, uh, you know, uh, academic papers and so forth. Um, so I, I would find variants of easily accessible short form content that, um, you can engage with and then use that as a jumping off point to go far deeper into, into areas that inspire you. Um, so that's where, that's, that's where I'd lead people to. Awesome. Thank you so much. And again, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you very much guys. Thank you for listening. This was the second episode of the green beginnings podcast. If you liked it, and if you want to hear more from us, please subscribe. And if you want to stay up to date and interact with us and the community, follow us on LinkedIn under Green Beginnings. We hope you enjoyed it. See you on the next one.